welcome to Are You Karate Kidding Me? The Cobra Kai and Karate Kid recap show with news and insight from all around the Miyagi-verse. Yeah, we like to tool around the Miyagi-verse, which is, of course, all things, well, how's a way to say that? All things Cobra Kai and Karate Kid? <laughs> Everything with Pat Morita involved. Yeah, we love the Karate Kid, and we love Cobra Kai. So much so that we're recapping all the Cobra Kai episodes, all the Karate Kid movies. Today we're doing episode nine, Different But Same, and this is part of our march to the end of season one in advance of season two, which is rapidly approaching. We should be only a couple of weeks away now, uh, and we're very excited. The cast and crew are out there doing the promotional tour thing. They were just at South by Southwest. That was very exciting. I guess we should say without spoiling anything that we were at the premiere and uh, it was very cool. We were at the premiere and a couple of people were like, hey, but where are the rest of your episodes? To which I say, we did want to go as close to the the beginning of season two as possible, but we were waylaid by a couple of things in the wintertime, namely illness and also Someone's obsession with perfecting Sato's theme. These things are important. Uh, yeah, the Sato's theme was for the Karate Kid Part 2 recap episode, which, as some of you know, is a giant quagmire of awesomeness. Now, anytime we mention Sato, I can drop it in, which is nice. You may have already heard Mike Barnes' theme in a previous episode. That's true. So, episode 9. Fans of the Karate Kid will probably remember that the title of this episode, Different But Same, happens in the Karate Kid. This is when Daniel is celebrating his birthday with Mr. Miyagi right before Mr. Miyagi gives him the car. And he's showing Mr. Miyagi his driver's license and a picture that he and Allie took in the photo booth at Golf and Stuff falls out and Mr. Miyagi goes, I never know you have sweetheart. She's cute or whatever. Look good together. Mm, different but same. So we know that line as a reference to Daniel needing to learn that he and Allie, that they were more alike than they were not alike. So we'll see how that plays out in this episode. I am really excited. This is my favorite episode of Cobra Kai. Yeah? Let's put it this way. I think the finale is just fantastic and better than anything else in the show, which is already good. Mm -hmm. But like in terms of the story and all the things that happen, I feel like this is just a fantastic climax, which is also really enjoyable. And how often does that happen? It's... uh. It's pretty rare and wonderful when a show can surprise you, especially a show that is, for all intents and purposes, a sequel to something else. The idea that they can introduce new twists and turns that can grab your attention. You would like it to happen all the time, but it rarely does. It's pretty great, and I don't want to spoil anything, so let's just go ahead and get right into it. We open on a scene of Robbie on his skateboard. Yeah, Robbie's at the skate park. You know, we talked a lot about how previous episodes have had Karate Kid-esque montages. This is kind of a unique Cobra Kai montage. This is Robbie skating to a kind of a, a Beastie Boys sabotage sound-alike track. And it's unclear whether he's trying to get better at skateboarding or if maybe something else is going on here maybe he's training it's, it's hard to tell it's blurring the line it's unclear right until the end when suddenly he's balancing on one arm just like daniel was trying to do during their training scenes on the mountain so it looks like this is a millennial or even younger than millennial version of daniel going out alone to train before the all valley tournament this is robbie out training on his own using his own skills, which is skateboarding, to perfect a technique without Daniel knowing, right? So part of this, I think, is also about really impressing Daniel and doing it on his own. Like, that's how much he cares. Speaking of Daniel, let's catch up with adult Daniel over at the LaRusso Mance. We see as the overture from Mozart's Marriage of Figaro is playing, further evidence of what a civilized and happy life Daniel LaRusso has in his Encino Hills mansion. Yeah, he's enjoying an espresso and toasting a bagel or something. He's very content until he sees probably the worst thing that Daniel could probably see in the morning, and that is Johnny Lawrence standing angrily next to his motorcycle right next to the pool. That's right. For those who could possibly have forgotten what happened in the last episode, we last saw Johnny Lawrence on a motorcycle speeding in the night to Daniel LaRusso's house. 
Now, of course, this mm-hmm. is a callback to the Karate Kid when Johnny terrorized the valley on his tricked-out motorbike. This is a pretty tense confrontation, wouldn't you say? Daniel sees Johnny standing outside, and the fact that it's daytime and the fact that Johnny went to Daniel's neighborhood last night means that Johnny has been going creeping from house to house somewhere on Escalon Drive trying to find Daniel LaRusso. L.A. traffic... Depending on what time of night Johnny's car got burned up, you know, (laughs) yeah, it makes sense that this is first thing in the morning. But the great thing about this confrontation (laughs) is some heated words are exchanged. They nearly, they're in karate stance. They're ready to go. When this happened on the show, when I first saw this, I was like, yes, finally, I knew it. Mm -hmm. Johnny was on his motorcycle. He was going to beat up Daniel LaRusso. And finally, the two old titans are going to do some karate. That's not what happens. No, the show is still giving us a a little bit of a tease. And and Johnny is, amazingly enough, standing there, like, balling his hands in a fist, just like Johnny Lawrence does in The Karate Kid. So that's like, whoa, flashbacks. But they're standing there. And when Amanda, played by Courtney Hingler, comes out, it's so great because, like, Anthony, Daniel's son... He's run out to to see what the commotion is. And Daniel's like, go back inside. And they're standing there in their traditional stances. And then when Amanda comes out, she just reality checks the whole situation. As much as I would love to watch you and your childhood karate rival duke it out, I kind of don't want to get any blood on the patio. Courtney Hangler is the secret weapon of this show because she gives it the reality effect it needs. And she also is the voice of the audience like of our higher selves saying, you don't want to see these two go- old guys fighting. Are you crazy? The secret to the Miyagi verse is it feels grounded. It feels like a real place. And as wacky as this show can get sometimes, it's important to have uh, these elements like Amanda, her character, and Courtney Hengler's performance of her character to kind of ground things back to reality and keep things fairly grounded. So, yeah. So Amanda then says, you know, don't you want to, like, come inside and talk about this? Which leads to uh, one of the best exchanges of the show, which is Daniel saying, Want to go inside? And Johnny saying, I don't know how they shot this without bursting out laughing on the set, except that these two guys and the whole ensemble are consummate pros. So here we are at West Valley High. Um, Mm -hmm. We see from the chalkboard that it is a Saturday, like, you know, test prep. So they're all in school on a Saturday, which is why Anthony is home when Johnny shows up to beat up on Daniel, but Sam is not. Instead, Sam is at the high school where we see also Dimitri and Miguel are their table mates taking this prep test. Mm -hmm. Dimitri is opining about his philosophy of needing to succeed in our capitalist society so he can get a babe. Whereas Miguel, because of his karate badassery, already has a hot chick, so he'll be okay. Dimitri's cynical worldview is is still fully in play. They get out of the test in time to see Sam, who actually meets Miguel outside the classroom. Miguel seems a little sullen. He blames it on tournament prep. He tries to kind of turn things around and invite himself to dinner, but Sam is still reticent, which only kind of irritates Miguel more, and uh, he's just barely holding it in at this point. Well, Miguel has baggage because in the previous episode, we saw him see Robbie at dinner with Sam's family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, Miguel didn't introduce himself or find out what the situation was, but he let the contagious bad feelings from Johnny's past take over his worldview. So he thinks that Sam is cheating on him, that Sam is hiding who he is from her family. And Sam is hiding Mm -hmm. that she's dating a Cobra Kai from her dad, but Sam doesn't have anything against Miguel. Like she's not with Robbie. She loves Miguel. True. Or at least likes him in a, in a high school way. So like they're like standing outside the classroom door when Miguel tries to invite himself over, Sam really can't right now with that. But at the same time, she still wants to hang out with him. She's like, you know, tonight's just really not a good night. Um, but we should totally hit up Ventura. Two shakes at Salt and Straw on me. And that's when Miguel defers and is like, I should go train. Maybe another time. So that that's weird because like, well, you just invited yourself to dinner, but now you have to train. I don't know. So it's a shame that they can't be emotionally honest with each other. Like this is totally the stuff of good drama because Cobra Kai is, a, is actually a secret dramedy, uh, not a comedy. They tricked us. Neither of them are going to find what they need in this conversation. So they both go away feeling a little unhappy. Speaking of tense meals at the LaRusso house, the next scene has us back at breakfast between Johnny, Amanda, and Daniel. 
This uh, is the second greatest scene in all of Cobra Kai. And it serves a couple of important points here. Uh, one, probably the most important, is that when Johnny lets it slip that Sam was involved with the original car crash way back in episode one that basically set off this entire chain of events. And that allows Amanda to put two and two together that Sam was hiding something from the rest of the family. I mean, this scene is great because we finally have the three most interesting adults in the room seated around the same table, right? We have Johnny and Daniel, and then we have Amanda, who is her cool-headed self, trying to mediate between these two dudes who won't let go of their high school past, and they're volleying their grievances back and forth to each other like ping-pong balls. Okay, you spray-painted a dick on my face. You tried to get me banned from the All-Valley. Johnny's like... He torched my car. I'm the guy who had your car fixed, remember? Well, Johnny says... Yeah, well, it wouldn't have needed to be fixed if your daughter and her friends hadn't erected it in the first place. The deal is that, of course, Daniel doesn't believe that because he Johnny Lawrence is terrible, right? But Amanda can tell. What is he talking about? And then all of a sudden, Amanda tells Johnny that it's lucky that they know someone who has a car dealership, i.e. she and Daniel can set Johnny up with a new car. Daniel doesn't want to give Johnny anything, but at this point, Daniel's just being an idiot. Also, this is some of the best lines ever as they're off fighting. Johnny's trying to eat his eggs and Anthony comes over. This is a great little touch. When you have these kind of big ensemble casts like this, it's kind of a treat for the writers to think of excuses to put characters that may not normally interact in scenes together so you can see what would happen. And we get a scene with Daniel's son, Anthony, and Johnny. Johnny angrily eating his breakfast. And Anthony kind of stands in the doorway to taunt Johnny a little bit, being like, You're lucky my dad didn't kill you. And Johnny's like, Yeah, you're lucky I didn't kill him. And then and he's like, I'm going to tell him you said that. And then Johnny's like, Good. I want him to know. And then Johnny is like, you guys got any ketchup? Which, of course, clues us into, like like his son Robbie, Johnny likes ketchup on his eggs. <laughs> and Anthony is like, get it yourself. It's a pretty cute little scene here. Not something that we ever would have expected to see, but now that we're seeing it, it's great. I have to say, like, Griffin Santo Pietro, actually, from his real life social media profile imprint, looks like a really neat kid. But he's mm-hmm. so good at being this sort of troll of the Larusso family. And to see him against mega troll Johnny Lawrence, it's just so great. Oh, yeah. I hope to see lots more of this in season two, for sure. Yeah. So, you know, after they face off and Johnny doesn't get his ketchup, we. Cut back to Daniel and Amanda agreeing that they will go get Johnny Lawrence a car. Get him out of your life forever is what Amanda suggests. Amanda being the most reasonable one, even though they've already done a lot for Johnny, we should not ever forget that Louis got a bunch of biker thugs to then undo all that goodwill by burning up Johnny's cars. So now Amanda's like, in for a penny, in for a pound. If it makes Johnny go away, if it gets... If it resolves the immediate problem, there's no harm in giving Johnny a car off of the used lot. You know, nothing new, but certainly better than what Johnny had before. Meanwhile, it is Saturday midday, early afternoon in the Valley. And after the SAT prep test thing, the Cobra Kais and Dimitri are sitting on a bench on what looks like a playground while all these kids are hanging out. Like, I admire these kids for all sitting outside and hanging out where there's sports going on. They're soaking up some sun, and Miguel is dejected because he is sure that things are on the outs with him and Sam. And Yeah, we're back to the same beat that we were at in the movie theater in the previous episode, which is Mopey Miguel's trying to suss out what his strategy with Sam is going to be. But you can't stop Debbie Downer! And, of course, the rest of the Cobra Kai is making just horrible suggestions. Well, actually, they're not um, that horrible, except for Hawk saying, All right, you go over to this kid and beat his ass so he doesn't have the chance. The deal is yeah. that none of them are taking seriously the thought that Sam could be cheating or anything because they know that Miguel doesn't have all the information. Uh, maybe it's not terrible advice, but it is distinctly Cobra Kai advice, for sure. <laughs> it's distinctly Cobra Kai advice. Meanwhile, Aisha is looking at her phone looking at the responses she's gotten to a video she posted of herself breaking a board, because, of course, she's a karate badass. And Mm -hmm. Yasmin, the bully from early in the season, was trolling her. Now they've got to find a way to retaliate. Oh, look, on Yasmin's profile page, we see that she's trying to stage a VIP-only birthday party for herself out at the lake. So now that these kids have completely, like, synthesized Cobra Kai... (laughs) They're on the verge of hatching this plan. They're going to strike first and 
make this party happen before Jasmine can, which is an interesting idea. Meanwhile, cut to the used car lot at LaRusso Auto. Oh. What a treat to see. We have Daniel LaRusso and Johnny Lawrence. Daniel is, of course, in his car salesman suit, and Johnny Lawrence is in his <laughs> dungarees, in his jeans, flannel, and T-shirt. And they are standing there looking at all these cars where Daniel you know, points at them and says, Choose! In a gesture reminding us of Mr. Miyagi giving 16-year-old Daniel LaRusso a car. Oh my goodness, you're so right. The beats and the callbacks and the way that this show is constructed, it's amazing. Because it's like stuff you don't even realize is a callback is a callback. Like the previous scene with them in the park is very reminiscent of the first scenes of Daniel and Allie on the playground in Karate Kid 1. And now this is Daniel making Johnny choose a car. However, unlike that original scene, this scene turns into a, well, let's just say a car measuring contest between <laughs> Daniel and Johnny. Johnny points to a Dodge Challenger. Mm-hmm. If you were as obsessed with cars as you were with retro computer technology, you could probably tell us the year that that Challenger is. It's still a fairly recent model, and it's in good condition, so I think that's the most important thing. It is, it is a very nice car. Like, LaRusso is luxury automotives, so people are trading up their mid to high-end cars for, like, high, super high-end cars. Yeah. So the stuff in the used lot at LaRusso is probably better than what's in most lots at most other dealerships around town. Except for that Subaru Forester. That thing's a piece of junk. <laughs> God, Johnny is such a... Yeah, Johnny rejects the Subaru Forester because he says... Do I look like a lesbo? Well, he says a politically incorrect thing. But anyway, moving on. We have Johnny admiring this Challenger and Daniel coming towards it. And Daniel saying... 5.8 liter. And Johnny's like... 5.7. Which prompts Daniel mm -hmm. to say, what, you know cars? And Johnny's like... What kind of man doesn't? Guys, this may not be entirely about cars. Indeed. But I mean, it's so funny the way this is done and the way the guys play it. Because you can tell that Daniel is legit curious. Like, oh, you know cars? <laughs> like... Could we have this in common? But Johnny's just like, ah, I'm not picking up on your cue, so I'm just going to shut it down and be like, what kind of a man doesn't? Funny how they get like really close to communicating and then insult each other again. Do you think Johnny gets another bonsai tree with his car? Bonsai tree. There's a moment of luckily missed connection where Daniel's like trying to figure out who can give Johnny a test drive because, of course, Johnny doesn't trust Daniel to sell him a good car, right? And mm -hmm. uh, Daniel's asking around, like, who could give Johnny a test drive? Louie's not allowed on the lot anymore. You know, Robbie's, this is day off. And then we're like, oh, my God, I completely forgot that Johnny Lawrence's son is working for Daniel. Oh, my, it's very lucky that Robbie's not at work today. In fact, thank goodness he's on his skateboard somewhere else. It looks like Daniel's going to have to give this test drive after all. And we'll catch up with that in a minute. Because now we've got to run back home to the LaRusso manse real quick where Amanda confronts Sam because now the cat is out of the bag and she knows that Sam was involved with this car wreck uh, that happened in the parking lot back in episode one. Amanda gets it out of Sam that she was involved in this accident. And even though Yasmin was driving, it doesn't matter. She's caused a lot of trouble. Now, of course, Amanda doesn't tell Sam what the trouble is. Sam doesn't know this is about Johnny Lawrence and the Cobra Kai's, right? But she revokes mm -hmm. all of her digital privileges, all of her online stuff. I mean, this is a very smart scene, not only because we're now connecting up some narrative threads that desperately need connecting up before the, you know, the big climax of the series. Amanda doesn't just ground Sam. She's cyber ground Sam. Thanks to Anthony, who's eating a pickle in the background like he would. Uh, he reminds mm -hmm. everyone that Sam's smartwatch is also a way of contacting the outside world. So now Sam has lost all ability to communicate with anyone who she might need to repair her relationship with. Like Miguel. Yes. Yeah, she, she grounds Sam in, in the way that is most devastating to a teenager in our current age. And meanwhile, we see Johnny Lawrence and Daniel LaRusso zooming down a California street through the palm trees, clearly shot on location in L.A., mm -hmm. zipping along. And Daniel is not thrilled at the speed Johnny's going, but it's obvious that they're both plugged in and dealing with each other. In such a way as they yeah. can. When Daniel's complaining about the speed, we also get to hear Johnny Lawrence call him that old chestnut of a nickname, Danielle. Nice callback if you're on that Easter egg hunt, for sure. Oh, yeah. No, my basket is full. Uh, yeah. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so there, I mean, the whole show, right? So 
As they buzz along, Johnny, continuing his repartee with Daniel, needles him about how many speakers does this thing have. <clears throat> and to prove it, Daniel turns on the satellite radio, whatever is in this fancy Dodge Challenger. Mm-hmm. And the song that fills the car is Take It on the Run by Ario Speedwagon, mm-hmm. which the first time this came on, I know I was watching this with you and we just burst out laughing. Just that, like we burst out laughing it's- because it was so ridiculous. Why, do, why did we laugh at that? I think it's because because it's just so wonderfully unexpected. You we spent nine episodes watching these guys just be petty and bicker with each other, and now it looks like they might be on the verge of becoming best frenemies. I just want to say, like, I think the reason why we burst out laughing when the Ario Speedwagon comes on the radio is because it's so indulgent. And yet so emotionally true to enjoy that if you grew up in the United States or you were young or open at a time when that was on the radio. Yeah. Right. Now we laugh kind of at hair bands and, and ballads from the 80s a lot. Even though it's cheesy, it's also deeply emotionally true. And I think that's the thing with Cobra Kai. This show should not work on paper. It could be another cynical reboot. We enjoy it so much and it's true. It's honest in a certain way. And so to hear that come on the radio with these two guys, especially two guys who are taking themselves in their 80s rivalry so seriously, mm-hmm. is like this beautiful meta moment. It makes you laugh, but then it charms you and pulls you in and makes you care. Yeah. Which is dangerous with these guys. Yeah. You know, but we can say why it's our favorite scene in all of Cobra Kai, and that's because of this. They're clearly both kind of moving their heads to the music. They call back to the scene on the lot when Daniel asks Johnny if he knew cars and Johnny offers the little olive branch to Daniel and says you like Speedwagon? Daniel goes what kind of man doesn't echoing Johnny's retort from the car lot but if you don't like it no no but then despite themselves they begin singing along in unison I don't If the people listening to our show had been on the couch with us at the moment that we watched this, they would know that we squealed and then held each other giggling like idiots Mm. while the showrunners withheld the key moment when Johnny and Daniel duke it out by the pool. They didn't let them fight. They gave us what we didn't know we really wanted, which is Johnny and Daniel being buddies. Going back to what you said, it's like, I think that's why it's so funny and so fun is because it's just completely unexpected. But when it happens, it feels emotionally true. It feels correct. It's a great scene. We could talk about it for hours. But speaking of taking it on the run, we do take it on the run all the way back to the South Seas apartment that they happen to drive by, which is, of of course, the apartment that Daniel first moved into when he came to Reseda. They happen to be passing by the South Seas apartment complex, Mm -hmm. which is where Daniel grew up. And Daniel, of course, finding a newfound openness to Johnny Lawrence as they, through song, as they jammed along to Speedwagon, tells him to pull over. So they get out of their car and go into the old gate that Daniel LaRusso first walked through in 1984 when he moved to the valley with his mom. They take this opportunity to kind of trade off a fugue states for a moment as we get some flashback clips to the original Karate Kid movie. Daniel kind of reminisces about how poor he was when he got to town and, you know, how he started out at this humble apartment. And he kind of takes a passive-aggressive swipe at Johnny saying, Must have been nice having a rich daddy give you everything. Johnny, of course, goes for the the pathos counterpunch, which is... uh, Didn't have a rich daddy. A rich stepdad. These guys are really learning a lot about each other this afternoon. They are, and we are learning that, in the words of Mr. Miyagi and the title of this episode, they have more in common than they seemed. They are different, but same. Well done, Mr. Powers. We're not so different, you and I. (laughs) I mean, the thing is that, at this moment in time, the guys are finding that they have a lot in common and that they have a lot to process. I think they're, they're cultivating empathy for one another. But it's still Johnny and Daniel's styles of empathy, right? So, you know, Johnny's quipped that he kicked Daniel's ass around that corner in the, in the famous Halloween fight scene from The Karate Kid. And then after they've confided about their youths, Johnny walks over and says, well, let's go to a bar. And Daniel's like, what? But that's how Johnny, you know, 
defines his relationships is like drinking with people. Yeah. So, yeah. Daniel went from being blue collar to white collar, whereas Johnny, on the other hand, has gone from being a, a rich kid to one of the most blue collar guys you could imagine. And so he wants to take the opportunity to do some day drinking with Daniel for sure. And also Daniel has shown Johnny his home place, i.e. the South Seas apartment complex. So Johnny is going to show Daniel his a bar. Mm-hmm. Good thing he's got the keys because Daniel did not want to go to that bar. Or while they're heading there, we cut to the mini mall convenience store that Nestor runs. Yes, the Nestor Mart. The Nest- yes, Nestor Mart, which is right down a few doors down from the Cobra Kai Dojo. And while the Cobra Kai kids are trying to gather enough snacks and drinks for the big party, Miguel is outside trying to get a hold of Sam. And of course, we know that Amanda has confiscated all of Sam's devices. So Miguel, now looking like John Favreau and Swingers. You're so money and you don't even know it. That's what I keep trying to tell you. So Could you, you not mess with me right now? Is sending her message upon message upon message. And she's not getting back to him. Miguel's attempts are going to be fruitless. But fortunately, the other Cobra Kai's kids' attempts to get what they want will not be fruitless. As inside the Nestor Mart, Hawk facilitates some illicit booze buying with some masterful social engineering. Hawk is scheming as to how they can get booze for their party. Hawk's continued rebranding efforts not only come with a bright blue mohawk and a full back tattoo, but also a fake ID as well. What does Hawk's ID say, by the way? Walter Hawkman? Yes, the ID says Walter Hawkman, which is... Obviously an homage to Walter White and birds everywhere. Yeah, for sure. No, it's an homage to the Hawk from The Next Karate Kid with Pat Morita and Hilary Swank. Whoa. I'm sorry, I couldn't help that. Wow, talk about your Easter egg hunts. I I didn't think we'd ever get a, a shout out to The Next Karate Kid, but here we are. I don't think the showrunners necessarily intended that, but of course it's all true. Indeed. So yeah. There's a rich history of, of fake IDs and underage drinking in cinema. The scene recalls, you know, a dozen Simpsons episodes. You're right, Milhouse. A fake ID! And it's our ticket to the best spring break of our lives! As well as things like uh, Super Bad and... This guy's either going to think, here's another kid with a fake ID, or here's McLovin, the 25-year-old Hawaiian organ donor. I am McLovin. American Graffiti also. Okay, you got an ID for the liquor? Oh, naps, I left it in the car. Sorry. I also... I forgot the car. Anyway, it's pretty great to watch Hawk talk to Nestor about wanting to buy this booze because he tries to slide in by making a reference to you know the Dodgers game because mm-hmm. Nestor's wearing a Dodgers shirt. As Hawk is trying to ingratiate himself to Nestor. Oh, yeah, Nestor said that he couldn't see the game because... I wanted to go, but my girlfriend dragged me to some lame-ass play. Mm-hmm. And Hawk's like... Bitches will be bitches. So, of course, this is how you show that your grown-up kid named Walter Hawkman is by... You know, calling ladies bitches. I'm cool. Talking about ladies. Either way, Nestor's done. Like, as long as there's some kind of fake ID, whatever kid, you can have the vodka or whatever you're looking for. Once again, the Cobra Kai kids, through deception and aggression, get get what they want. No mercy, basically. No No mercy, mercy, for sure. And so with that, we are whisked away back across town to the LaRusso manse. Amanda and Anthony are distracted by Robbie, who's come to call. Anthony was hoping that it was the drone that he ordered on Amazon, but instead, no, it is Robbie. As they intercut back and forth, Sam is sitting at the desk doing homework with Anthony and angry that she can't get to her phone. When Robbie comes to the door... Sam quickly snatches a look at her phone, which is in Amanda's purse, and sees that Miguel has sent her a text about a party at the canyon. Yeah, it's a real test moment. Sam almost gets a text off back to Miguel, but it's too late. Amanda comes right back in, snatches that phone, and uh, that's the last Sam sees of it for a while. Robbie, who is here to train with Mr. LaRusso, and of course, Mr. LaRusso has been pulled away by, well, we're not going to mention that to Robbie, because why should the kid be bothered by some ridiculous high school karate rivalry? Mm -hmm. Of course, if Amanda had but told Robbie where Daniel was, Robbie would be like, oh, he's with my dad. Maybe I should bail now. But instead, Robbie feeling this is a safe situation, stays there, talks to Sam. Sam is in a terrible mood and says that she's being held prisoner and has to get out of here. So Robbie is obviously kind of crushing on Sam and trying to think about that. Like, hmm, so she needs some help. So he's going to hang out, train, whatever. Meanwhile, 
back with Daniel and Johnny. We see them sitting at a bar mm-hmm. talking about their lives. Yeah. Once again, we get some, uh, much like the last episode with the conversation between Johnny and Miguel. In this episode, we also get some revisionist history when we get this conversation between Daniel and Johnny as they both different but sane their way through uh, <laughs> their reminiscence of what happened in high school during that famous first year. And they take the opportunity to kind of catch up about Allie. Well, but in this scene, in this moment with Daniel and Johnny, you know, Daniel, Johnny is, of course, being his usual Johnny self. So he jokes about Daniel drinking a Shirley Temple while he drinks a banquet. And of course, Daniel instead opts for club soda because he's a sober, upstanding professional. Mm -hmm. But then Daniel tries to keep it real because of their exchange back at the South Seas apartment complex and says so... Your stepdad was an asshole, huh? Because that's what Johnny had said to him. They take a moment to talk about their father figures in absentia. Which is like really amazing because in this moment, Johnny says... I come home and pretty much get bullied every day. That's why I joined Cobra Kai. Mm -hmm. Because Kreese was more of a father to Johnny than his own stepfather ever was. Mm Mm-hmm. Conveniently forgetting that Kreese was also a bully. No, he doesn't forget that. Yeah? No, because then, first of all, Ralph Macchio does the best ever double take at the news that Johnny found a father in Kreese and that that's why he joined Cobra Kai. But, you know, Johnny's like, Yeah, you wouldn't understand. And Daniel's like, My dad died when I was eight. Mr. Miyagi was like a father to me. And then Daniel has his own different but same moment where he says, It's crazy, man. Both finding karate role models. Karate teachers do make good dads, though. Yeah, karate role models. So now, having realized they're different but same, Daniel calls the bartender and orders a martini with two olives, ice, ice cold. So we can tell that Daniel is opening himself up to hanging out with Johnny and drinking together as men. Uh, And we'll come back to the bar in a minute, but we have to go across town to the lake, I guess, to Yasmin's party interruptus. Yasmin, Kyler, Brooks, and Moon all arrive. These are all the... Yasmin, Kyler, Brooks, and Moon is also the worst folk band that you could possibly ever imagine. Yasmin, Kyler, Brooks, and Moon was a failed Dutch folk band that never quite... Never quite made it out of Utrecht. No. They roll in in Kyler's fancy Jeep to the party at the lake where it's already in full swing because the Cobras have set up shop. They've got their trademark Dixie cups. They are drinking and have a giant fire, dancing, very happy people. And Yasmin, of course, wants Kyler to clear the scene and get everyone out of there so she can have her party. But Kyler sees Miguel. So he's not going to do that. Meanwhile, though, Hawk has made eyes at Moon, who thinks he looks pretty rad in his mohawk. And she's not wrong. And the other thing that happens in this in this sequence is that Aisha comes over to Miguel, who's been kind of holding off on celebrating because he can't find Sam. She never picks up the phone, so he just sort of decides that he's going to go all in, opens up a cooler, and begins slamming back beers. This is probably the second time in his life that Miguel has ever had alcohol. <laughs> Meanwhile, back at the LaRusso manse, we've got Sam on the couch reading Faulkner's As I Lay Dying, which is not how I would spend my time being grounded. I think I would probably go into the dojo and practice some karate. Yeah, Sam is reading As I Lay Dying, commenting that it's so boring. Uh, PolitiFact equals true on that one. Uh, Hey, wait a second. (laughs) Speak for yourself. To be fair, though, had she paid attention to that book, she would know the value of not compromising one's happiness to a paternal figure that's only looking out for their own ends. Fair. (laughs) While Sam's looking at that Faulkner, she's knowing that she could instead be going to the party with the cool kids in the canyon. We see Robbie coming back into the living area, dragging his ankle or foot as if he is injured in some way. Yeah, Robbie comes in saying that while he was doing his kata, he sprained his ankle and he's just going to hobble home on his skateboard. But Amanda, of course, is too nice for that. She's like, I don't know when Daniel's going to be back, but you need a ride home? Uh, Sure, but I know you have those reports finished, so I can wait. I don't even worry about it. Sam? Yes, Warden? Robbie sprained his ankle. He needs a ride home. Even though she's cyber grounded, she's going to let Sam leave the house to chauffeur Robbie home, which is an interesting distinction. But I guess in this modern world, being cyber grounded supersedes being regular grounded grounded. So Sam and Robbie are walking out together and then 
Robbie reveals that, oh, he has been faking it just to get Sam out of there. And Sam's like, that's great. Do you want to go to a party? And Robbie's like, sure, thinking, oh, my God, I'm, I'm making it with this girl. And then she's like, that's great, because, like, my boyfriend is probably really wondering where I am. Mm-hmm. So then Robbie runs a con on Amanda to convince her to let Sam chauffeur him. And as they're leaving, Sam convinces Robbie to drive her to this party to see Miguel. So now that Robbie and Sam have headed out, we go back to Daniel and Johnny at the bar where they are clearly having a very good time. Yeah, back at the bar, the two lads are fully catching up with each other. W slash R slash T Alley. Yeah. <laughs> What's Alley doing now, which is an important question in the Karate Kid world, even though we haven't seen her in, what, nine episodes and three movies? Whenever Poochie's not on screen, all the other characters should be asking... Where's Poochie? They give us a fantastic callback at the top of the scene with Johnny laughing about the time that he kissed Allie in front of Daniel, made Daniel freak out at the country club, and wind up covered in spaghetti sauce when he was trying to get away. And Daniel's like, that, that sauce burned. I laugh all you want. I hear Allie clocked you right after that. <laughs> they were disagreeing about how it went down. Yeah. Now it's all just water under the bridge for Daniel and Johnny as they talk about where Allie is mm -hmm. and what she's doing. Daniel knows a little bit about her. He hasn't seen her in decades, but he knows that she lives in Denver. She's a pediatric surgeon married to an oncologist. Johnny's like, For someone who hasn't talked to Allie in decades, you sure know an awful lot about her. Man. And Daniel says, I've seen her on Facebook. And then Johnny replies, What's a Facebook? Which further confirms, if he doesn't know about Facebook, that Johnny Lawrence is actual Encino Man. He's a caveman who just stepped into the 20th century. Whoa! Daniel brandishes his smartphone mm -hmm. and shows Johnny Allie's profile page as, insofar as he could see it. Her name is now Allie Mills Schwarber. Daniel kind of longingly says, you know, you, well, he says, I never messaged her because, you know, I'm a happily married man. And she never messaged me either. So they bond now overlooking at pictures of Allie's husband mm -hmm. and his dumb face as Johnny says you know we've all been there I guess I don't know uh, have you have you ever looked up anybody on Facebook I will not admit to having looked anyone up on Facebook Me? but if okay. I did I would order another round just like Daniel does exactly uh, agreed so here we are back at the party. Back at the lake, uh, the party is in full swing. I did realize, however, on this watch through that the party is at the lake and not at the beach in California because, of course, they're shooting all the Cobra Kai kid stuff in Atlanta. In fairness, if I want to believe that they're actually in California, we can just say that the traffic on the, the 101 was too dense. And so they had to go inland. It's still reasonable. California has some beautiful lakes, I'm sure. And also, if you're a bunch of teens planning a underage drinking party, then a lake is a little more secluded than a, you know, a big open public beach. Meanwhile, we've got Hawk making out with Moon and giving Dimitri his McConaughey-style advice as to how to move in on the ladies. Hawk encourages Dimitri to live in the moment, to which, yeah, D yes. Dimitri says, That is the most McConaughey thing I've ever heard. All right, all right, all right. Dimitri then decides to try to live in the moment with Yasmin, the biggest bully on campus who is standing there, arms folded, not at all interested in being here while her buddy's off making off with Hawk. And Dimitri begins just talking and can't stop talking. Dimitri just sort of walks the line of funny and creepy um, talking to her. And, of course, she storms off. And Dimitri sees that as a victory because she didn't storm off sooner. This propels Yasmin to confront Aisha for doing all of this. While Yasmin is trying to grab Moon and holding Aisha accountable for ruining her birthday, she says to Aisha, You're just a fugly bitch and your friends are all freaks. Mm -hmm. Then as she storms off, Aisha has decided she's not going to take it anymore and with countless smartphones as witnesses, gives Yasmin a truly brutal wedgie. Uh, a severe atomic wedgie. Yeah, with digital witnesses, right? Which is the, the medium of bullying in this modern Miyagi-verse. That's right. The cyberbully shoe is now on the other cyberbully foot, for sure. As Aisha gives her a wedgie, she yells, No mercy, bitch! So, of course, what is happening is that she's incorporated the Cobra Kai lessons into standing up for herself. And we enjoy it because Yasmin has been so evil this whole time. Definitely. Of course, it's also another line to walk of, like, to what extent is the idea of no mercy helpful in seeking justice but then on the other hand what kind of justice do you seek with the ugly feelings 
that you might be nurturing. Exactly. It's at this moment that Sam and Robbie arrive at the party. This fortuitous time when everything is already precipitously hanging, Sam and Robbie pull up and Robbie's like, why have you been driving so fast? This was terrifying. And Sam explains, sorry, I just, I know Miguel's been waiting for me. And Robbie's like, what the hell's wrong with your boyfriend in so many words? Because why on earth would Sam be this worried about a guy that she's dating? Like, that's wrong. And Sam explains that she's been hiding the fact that Miguel is a Cobra Kai. And that her father hates Miguel's sensei. And as soon as he finds out, Daniel's going to lose it. Which, of course, we see Robbie being like, oh, shit, that's my dad. So I'm screwed as well. So even though Sam apologizes for this being a total soap opera, or as the New Yorker referred to Cobra Kai 18 show for Gen Xers, Robbie is like, I can relate because he's got his own secrets. And of course, Robbie is able to finally put at least most of the pieces together where he's like, sensei, you say? Daniel, you say? Robbie is one of the few people who have most of the pieces at this point. Of course, this triggers all sorts of conflicted emotions for Robbie, but Sam doesn't have time for that. She's got to go down and confront Miguel. Speaking of conflicted emotions, we next see Miguel looking up where Robbie and Sam are coming down the hill, Mm -hmm. and Robbie is chivalrously holding Sam's hand, Mm -hmm. and thus, Robbie is still kind of into Sam, but being sweet to her, being helpful, Mm -hmm. and Sam's laughing, because like she can do it herself, but she sees no reason to like yell at Robbie, but Miguel has just been drinking so damn much that all of his ugly feelings are now completely unleashed. And he greets them with nothing but bile and sarcasm. Miguel, being half in the teenage bag by this point, he crosses an irredeemable line, I think. Miguel comes up, and this is an interesting moment because Miguel's like, who's this? And Sam explains that this is Robbie. He works for her dad. And Miguel's like, oh, your dad. Great. I can associate these two people and hate him even more. Yeah. Uh, Because, of course, at this point, Miguel hates Daniel because of what Johnny's told him. And Robbie looks at Sam and says, wait, this is your boyfriend? Because, of course, Robbie recognizes Miguel as the kid that Johnny was hugging outside the dojo in episode five when Robbie wanted to give Johnny a chance and he saw Johnny hugging this other kid, so he left. That kid was Miguel. So at this point, they make each other as potential rivals. But Robbie isn't angry like Miguel. He's just like figuring it out, whereas Miguel is absolutely enraged. There's a lot of spider webbing relationships here. So yeah, at this point in the in the show, we you know I feel like I'm walking into spider webs. Sam's like, wait, have you been drinking? Sam's actually concerned. Miguel starts yelling at Sam. Miguel just sort of assumes that Sam is cheating on him, has all the feelings of that being true without asking her questions. Mm-hmm. And then Miguel tries to shove Robbie. Robbie gets ready to fight him back. Sam tries to stop it. And then Miguel hits Sam because he's going for Robbie and is drunk and is careless and has let the anger get the better of him. Yeah. So, of course. I mean, it's a real fine line here, right? It's a real tough situation because now we've got Miguel who was, who's been drinking irresponsibly. He's trying to strike out at Robbie and in the process you know the show makes it very clear that he accidentally hit Sam but still he hit Sam and that's not cool well yeah he hit Sam and it's like Sam I'm sorry he was 100% the aggressor in that scene the mm-hmm. only thing that Robbie did do was sort of prepare to shove him back because he was at this point heightening and getting angrier and angrier Miguel was 100% in the wrong here mm-hmm. and um and he was violent and he made assumptions. And I don't think he even knows all the assumptions that he made because, again, it, for him, it was all just true the way he felt. It doesn't excuse what he did. I think the great thing about Cobra Kai is that we're going to see him, well, hopefully learn, but he won't get what he wants until he figures out what he's done wrong. But in this moment, like, he's lost Sam because he hit her and she walks away. And, of course, then Robbie runs after her because there's nothing for Robbie at that party. So he's going to go help Sam. So ironically, like a better version of the relationship between Anakin Skywalker and Padme Amidala, indeed, Miguel's <laughs> desire to, in Star Wars, it's it's Anakin's desire to keep Padme alive. No, no. It's Miguel's desire to to have his relationship with Sam that actually makes him so attached that he can't, he can't make it work. Right. Well, all thankfully, he did not force choke Sam. Thankfully. But Sam did say something that's very telling right here at the end, which is on her way out, she's like, I 
much I was right about Cobra Kai. A pretty damning statement, I would think, from Sam. So Sam reveals to a certain extent that, yeah, I have been talking to my dad about Cobra Kai, right? She hadn't admitted that yet. So she admits that. Mm -hmm. But in fairness, I don't blame her for feeling that way because that was pretty jacked up. This scene is very intense. And given the emotional intensity of all the scenes that precede it, Daniel and Johnny's near fight, their car sing-along, their heart-to-hearts in the bar, and then, of course, this fiery throwdown between Sam, Miguel, and Robbie, one might forget that Daniel and Johnny are out there somewhere in the wild, but instead, here they are pulling up to the LaRusso mansion. After a rousing afternoon of best friend me bonding, the boys have returned back to the LaRusso manse, and they're going to retire to Daniel's private dojo to have a bit of a Rocky Three, I think. Johnny's bringing Daniel home in his fancy new LaRusso auto car. They get out of the car... And at this point, you can tell that Johnny's been asking Daniel for them to have a rematch. Yeah, yeah. Just like in Rocky Three. <laughs> I'll tell you, Bob, you better go slow because you ain't as young as springtime no more. I'm still young enough to whip your butt out. Oh, yeah? Daniel needs a ride home, and <laughs> Johnny's requested Uber payment is a rematch. In fact, I think he even calls it out in dialogue. And Daniel can finish his sentence because they're different but same. However... Something happens when they get back to that dojo. Something that changes everything forever. And what is that? That is that Robbie is in the dojo waiting for Daniel. Because, of course, with his conscience triggered by Sam's desire to come clean, Robbie, too, wants to come clean to Daniel and preempt a nuclear meltdown. However, it has the exact opposite effect when the two men walk into the dojo. Mm -hmm. Daniel sees Robbie and greets him like he knows him. And Johnny's like, what the hell's going on? Because... All Johnny knows is that there's his son standing in Daniel LaRusso's dojo. Man, I gotta tell you, the way they light this scene here, it's sort of like, it's low lit, like it's calm, but in reality, it's so sinister. And the way the light catches Johnny Lawrence's eyes, it reminds me so much of his scary eyes from the Karate Kid. You can't help but think that's intentional. We got a lot of underlighting here, a lot of some stuff that makes this already tense situation even more harrowing for sure unbeknownst to daniel robbie is johnny's son and thus daniel introduces robbie to johnny saying i have a student of my own johnny in an echo of miguel's shoving of robbie johnny shoves daniel against the wall johnny doesn't ask questions he doesn't try to understand anything else he just sees red and then he strikes first knocking over daniel's all valley trophy from 1984 how dare he robbie gets between them to protect daniel from johnny's rage and says you know back off dad and that's the moment when daniel realizes that johnny is robbie's father so of course johnny storms off but not before saying you gotta be kidding me in the most devastating tone showing you know towards robbie Daniel accuses Robbie of this being some kind of a sick joke and then leans over to find that his trophy is now broken. But that which is broken can be reforged. Thank you for that Lord of the Rings (laughs) reference. Additionally, that is an echo of Kreese breaking Johnny Lawrence's trophy at the beginning of Karate Kid Part 2. And then Johnny has stormed out. Daniel can't believe that Robbie has done this. And Daniel rejects Robbie. Daniel tells Robbie to get out. Don't come back. And don't come back to the dealership. So Robbie, you know, he's lost not only his sensei and his father figure, he's lost his job. He's out a job in two dad figures. Who loses the most in this episode? It's really Robbie. It's a very efficient scene in that just by Robbie being there, we get this double betrayal. Daniel feels betrayed by Robbie, who didn't tell him that he was Johnny's son. And then Johnny feels betrayed by Robbie, who didn't tell him that he's Daniel's student. And really, what more can you say? I know. There's really nothing more to say except that it was all just fun and games and we were all feeling so good. We all had a vision of how it could be in terms of Johnny and Daniel being buddies. But then, of course, the larger worlds of which they are apart conspire to keep them apart. Right? Like at this point, Johnny doesn't even care about his relationship with Daniel because the, the thing he really cared about, which is Robbie, of course, just like Allie in 1984... Now the thing he cares about the most now, his son has gone over to LaRusso's side. Everything has changed forever. And with that, we come to the conclusion of episode nine, Different But Same. Different But Same. So, Jenny, please tell me what you think about this episode because i know you have a lot of thoughts uh this is my favorite episode of cobra kai i mean there's a lot to like about it for sure episode nine is as good a rom-com albeit a homosocial rom-com not a romantic rom-com 
It's as good a rom-com as any Nora Ephron movie. <laughs> I mean, I'll agree with that. Absolutely. It's just really well put together from a writing standpoint. The thing that this episode does that's particularly good, in my opinion, is that it does the perfect job of being episode nine, being the climax. It takes us to a couple of very high points. Daniel and Johnny being frenemies, Aisha getting her revenge on Yasmin before it then cuts us off, kind of flips the table on us, and suddenly it's betrayal on betrayal on betrayal in like this last two minutes. It's so devastating because you know that the show has been so generous up to this point, and I've talked before about how in episodes seven and eight, how like there are these moments of angst, and you're like, oh my God, no, I don't want this bad thing to happen. Mm -hmm. But nothing like shattering has happened, but this is the closest it's come so far to really shattering you. Mm -hmm. Like now all these relationships that made you feel so good, like Robbie finding a better path or Daniel and Johnny finding each other, like they are endangered. By all this. And it's it's really sad and really hard. All the hard work from episodes one through eight finally pay themselves off as all these narrative threads finally start pulling together. We've got Aisha and Yasmin. We've got Sam and Amanda. Uh, we've got Robbie, Johnny, and Daniel all together. We've got Miguel and Sam and Robbie. Those three are finally in the same place at the same time. And you get fireworks because... They've been doing all this work to set up these relationships all season, and now we have everything together at once. Then there are the relationships that you never knew you always wanted, such as Hawk and Moon making out in the canyon, or <laughs> Johnny and Anthony feuding over where the ketchup is. That's a great point. In addition to all that other stuff, you've got all those fun surprises. I think they really made the most of their ensemble cast in this episode specifically, as I don't think there's one opportunity missed for every single character to have something interesting or fun or dramatic to do. I don't think I saw anyone grilling any hot dogs, which if they'd had that, then it would have been a true like Easter egg extravaganza. Because that's what all the kids were doing in the 80s on the beach. <laughs> Unfortunately, nothing like that seemed to be going down at the lake. That's because there are but, no hot dogs uh, in Georgia. Could have just been slightly off screen as well. Maybe if Miguel had just eaten more hot dogs, he wouldn't have had his complete meltdown. And we touched on this a little bit, but I think it may be worth going over again is the whole Robbie situation, right? Yeah. This is the episode where Robbie reveals his status to both Johnny and Daniel simultaneously which causes everyone to feel betrayed. Yeah. Uh, and Robbie is left out in the cold. And with only one episode left in the show to go, you really don't know what turn things are going to take with him. Well, and it's so interesting because when I was first watching this show, I was like, this Robbie kid, ugh. I was thinking back to my days as, I will confess, a summer soap opera junkie when I was like in junior high and I would be at home during the summers and turning on daytime TV. And there are always the villains with a heart, like David Canary's Adam Chandler and all my children. And you would just love to see the villain go through all this stuff. And then there would be the annoying kid along or someone who was the sort of sub villain or the wannabe villain. And I would always be like, get out of the way. And when Robbie first appeared mm -hmm. on the scene, I was like, ugh, this is going to be sort of a melodramatic foil in Johnny's life. And you know, he's such a jerk and you take Johnny's point of view. So I was like, Ugh, why can't he just be nice to Johnny without thinking about the fact that Johnny did screw Robbie over by not being there for him when he was little. And by the time we reach this point in the show and we've seen everyone invest in Robbie, Robbie could have moved in on Sam once Sam and Miguel had had their falling out. It's not that Sam would have necessarily gone with Robbie. It's interesting that rather than think of himself in that moment, when things break down between Sam and Miguel, Robbie doesn't think about what he wants to have in terms of a relationship with Sam. Like his first thought is like, I need to get back to Mr. LaRusso and tell him the truth. So first Robbie busts those thieves in episode seven. And now he's trying to come clean to Mr. LaRusso. He's Robbie's Mr. Miyagi. Mm -hmm. And that's the great tragedy is that Robbie didn't even realize that he could do the right thing. And now all of a sudden the audience didn't even realize, at least I didn't that I cared about Robbie until I saw Daniel close that door in his face. There's a lot of hay made about the Daniel-Johnny dynamic, but I think Robbie is the real secret Trojan horse character of this season in that he starts off 
so unlikable and so kind of prototype bad kid when he starts and you don't really know what's going to come of it. But then as the episodes unfurl themselves, he changes into a completely different character, a completely sympathetic character. And that's a little bit of a magic trick that this show is doing. It is a magic trick. It's so hard because we know now, too... Robbie just wanted to connect with Johnny. That's why, Mm -hmm. you know, he wanted negative attention from Johnny. He went over to work for LaRusso Otto because he wanted to anger his dad. But what that really means is that he wants Johnny to pay attention to him. And in that, he found a father figure who was far better equipped to pay attention to him than his own father was. At the same time, we have just learned in the previous episode that all Johnny wants, as Johnny's sitting there writing this letter to Robbie that never gets sent, his number one regret is that he hasn't had a good relationship with his son. You know, Robbie is not only someone that we sympathize with, he's the carrier of Johnny's hopes. He's the person that holds the key to Johnny feeling okay. And even though that's not necessarily this kid's burden, when things go badly for him or when he's at the heart of a feud between Johnny and Daniel, like that's that's how important he is. Exactly. Meanwhile, the show really freaks me out at this point because I'm like, what is going on with Miguel? Well, it's funny you should mention that because on my note sheet, that was my very next item as well. And I think the segue that I'd like to use is um, this is the season that Robbie turns over a new leaf. Meanwhile, Miguel takes the opposite direction. Miguel goes full dark side. Miguel appears to be slowly turning Sith. (laughs) It's weird that it like... Well, it's not actually weird at all, given what we know about the Karate Kid, right? I mean, when Miguel shoves Robbie, it's right on par with the way that Johnny shoves Daniel, not only in this episode, but in the original Karate Kid, right? That's what happens on the beach. Yeah. When Johnny's up in Allie's face, Daniel's trying to protect Allie's radio, and Johnny sees Daniel's been flirting with Allie, which is totally their business. Like, it's not Johnny's problem if he and Allie are broken up. But Daniel appears to Johnny as an aggressor who's trying to stake a claim on his property, right? Like this idea that the woman is just like there for the taking or that the man's desire for the woman determines her desire. Like Miguel can't imagine because of the negative stuff that has been whispered in his ear by Johnny about the LaRussos and also just the tragedy of Sam not knowing how to talk to Miguel about her dad, etc. Miguel can't even imagine that Sam could be loyal to him at this point, right? All he sees is that there's another guy there. And he's taken on this idea of, if you're not with me, you're my enemy. And I'm so sorry that I keep quoting Anakin Skywalker from the Star Wars prequel trilogy. Uh huh. It's heartbreaking to watch Miguel do this transformation. Robbie and Miguel just completely, like invert roles by this point in the season Robbie has some genuine pathos and some genuine his betrayal and his hurt are genuine uh, meanwhile Miguel has been feeding his anger and mistrust all season and so his anger and his betrayal are completely or at least for the most part manufactured you know and he doesn't try to balance it he just keeps trying to hope that more aggression will get him what he wants when all it's doing is driving the people closest to him away. He's not taking it out on his Cobra Kai friends. His relationship with his buddies is getting stronger and stronger as they bond through these activities. Part of the problem is that you know he feels safe in his quiver, but it's with the outside world that he's losing touch, right? He's given himself over to trust Johnny because Johnny's lessons have brought him success but one of the reasons that the idea of strike first strike hard no mercy is that miguel brought his own skills his own intelligence his own kindness to that like when he was asking Mm -hmm. sam on the date and now that he, he no longer trusts things that are real he is showing that those cobra kai lessons that involve attacking a thing can also turn into real aggression that hurts people i mean you bring up a great point is this idea that miguel having insulated himself inside this group of like-minded individuals, they're just going to keep reinforcing his bad ideas, and it's just going to continue piling mistake on mistake. And unless he gets some perspective, who knows how far they, they can take this. What do you think about Aisha's maturation in the Cobra Kai way and her revenge on Yasmin? And then I want to talk to you about Sam. 
But what do you think about Aisha and how she's learned no mercy? That is a great point. And that's something similar to what I was going to ask you is that, yeah, do two wrongs make a right in this situation? When Yasmin gets her comeuppance at the hands of Aisha in this episode, it's supposed to feel like a victory. And it kind of does. But at the same time, there's kind of a, a Pyrrhic victory. It's a hollow victory at best because Aisha just got back at Yasmin in the same way that Yasmin has been bullying Aisha all season long. So sure, an eye for an eye is taken, uh, but I don't think that it's going to, I mean, obviously it's not going to solve things in the long run for Aisha. If anything, uh, I would expect it to maybe make things worse. I'm hoping that there's some sort of B or C plot running through season two that kind of builds on this idea that maybe now that Aisha has turned the tables and she's the bully, maybe other kids are starting to be afraid of her. Maybe maybe Yasmin goes and takes Miyagi-Do to get back at Aisha. We'll I just have to see. But. I don't think anyone with that odious a personality can even make it through the front door of Miyagi-Do. I think that... I think that I think that Miyagi Do, like a mirage, disappears in the sight of someone like Yasmin. Like she can't even perceive the teachings of Miyagi Do. That's why we're so entertained when Aisha gives her a wedgie and you know, with a million smartphones looking on. It's interesting because in this moment this is the limit case of how far you can take Cobra Kai in terms of shaming people, right? Like mm -hmm. no mercy and she shames Yasmin. And it feels good because it's justice, but then at the same time, you know, is Aisha going to be a bully or is she only going to retaliate when provoked? And I think that's a question that will be resolved in season two. We'll see how she locates herself morally within Cobra Kai. And, mm -hmm. and I think we want to see Aisha forming bonds with women that aren't toxic. So, <laughs> For sure. You know, I know that Moon has apologized to Aisha. She says that by the end of, of this episode. I think Sam and Aisha have a lot of potential. And there's also just the question of how is Aisha going to model being a woman in Cobra Kai? I can't wait to find that out. And I think that covers all my points. But speaking of being a woman in the karate universe, what were you going to ask me about Sam? We're going through this because these are all the major players, right? And we're going into the finale. We need to think about what the show is doing with them at this point. So where is Sam and what's going on there for her? Sam is in a precarious situation because at the conclusion of episode nine, she's now come off of two terrible relationships, Kyler and then Miguel, you know, not to define, you know, someone by their relationship, but she definitely is looking for that balance in her life that so many of the other characters in this show are. Fortunately, unlike other characters, the solutions are literally at her doorstep. She just needs to reach out and pick it up. Obviously, Robbie can still make some sort of play for her affection it'll be an interesting play she has to reconcile with Aisha she has to reconcile something with Miguel even if she doesn't go back to him and there's really no reason for her to at all and then Robbie has to kind of reconcile his feelings for Sam and maybe she'll reciprocate. Maybe she won't. We'll see. And I think that it is true that while Robbie and Johnny have had parallel arcs, Daniel and Sam have very parallel arcs. Both of them mm -hmm. are trying to figure out how to live in a world that is privileged, but not necessarily easy, where being introspective and having balance and having focus and being kind are not easily rewarded. And so I think mm -hmm. that at different points in the show, Sam's emergence as a thoughtful person with her own agency, Mary Mauser plays her in such a way that you see the spark of intelligence and care in her wanting to do the right thing. And now we see that she is tired of being caught between these dumb male rivalries that mm. she didn't have anything to do with. She wants just to do her own thing and like not deal with this. Yeah, She's not going to take it. And I'm curious to see what happens because we know that she has a background in karate. That said, we haven't seen Sam put on a gi yet. So mm -hmm. with that in mind, um, Colin, who is going to win the All-Valley Tournament? And I ask this knowing that we know, of course, who will win. But at this point in the show, 
when I was watching it, I was really at a loss as to who it could be. To be quite honest, with all this intense relationship drama at the end of episode nine, the Valley Tournament could not be the furthest thing from my mind. Fair enough. This episode is really the moment at which Cobra Kai confirms that it's not just a reboot. I mean, we've seen that throughout the show. But this is a moment Mm -hmm. where they really move beyond the existing plot beats of the Karate Kid. As a fan, watching episode eight, and then to see all of these seeds that have been planted sprout the most venomous Venus flytrap of all time here to devour Mm -hmm. our characters in angst and uncertainty. It was like, dang, Cobra Kai, you came to play. And really, not just through the hard stuff at the end, but that scene with Daniel and Johnny in the car and realizing they're different but same, even if at the end of this episode, they think, as Daniel said to Mr. Miyagi way back then about him and Allie, no, different but different. Mm -hmm. This is really a moment where we are given things we didn't know we really needed or wanted, and they're taken away, and now we don't even know what to feel because we thought this was a show about karate, and now it's becoming a show about, still about karate, but also something else. It's become more than the sum of its parts. Much like Daniel himself, or Miguel, coming up from humble beginnings to become something greater, for sure. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think that more than covers any sort of additional analysis for episode nine, Different But Same. And we will be back next week with the final episode of season one, episode 10, Mercy. And we could all use some at this point after such an angsty debacle. But, you know, as the episode preview shows us, it is the big All Valley tournament, and that promises to be an exciting time. Oh, yeah, that's right, the tournament. I'd forgotten all about the tournament, watching all this stuff go down. (laughs) Yeah, we've still got the tournament to settle. Oh, my God. Yeah, the... The emotional red herring of the season, for sure. We will, Uh, (laughs) as we hurl towards the season two premiere, it will be a delight to discuss episode 10, Mercy, next week. Until then, I've been Colin Cannaday. I've been Jenny Carlson. And we'll see you around the Miyagi-verse. See you around the Miyagi-verse. This podcast has been produced and hosted by Colin Cannaday and Jenny Carlson. Our music is by Chepo. You can find us at Karate Kid Pod on Twitter and wherever you download podcasts.